it is all about this, I guess, this, the cultural and spiritual connection that the woman's feeling. So you can be in a hospital setting and you can have a birthing on country experience because you're encompassing all of these different all of these different aspects and basically it all comes down to what the woman wants so what does the woman want to do with her birth welcome to talking in common a podcast of all things lifestyle family relationships well-being kids and culture this is not a how-to but an insight into the lives of ourselves and others and how we all manage to get by hosted by myself kate gadinsky and my co-host sophie panton Take a listen and let's find out what we all have in common. Welcome back, everybody. Hello, my darling Kate. Hello, Sophie. Do you know a lot is up today? Tell me. Very, very busy woman. Yeah, you got it all going on. (laughs) Although we are lucky to have had restrictions eased here in Victoria. Mm -hmm. My preppy is only back three days a week, so still homeschooling on the other two. Oh, yeah. And, of course, the day we pick to record is when I'm homeschooling. Yeah, you're practising the juggle today. Practising the art of the juggle. Nice, nice. Learning a few things myself, I might add. Well, you know what? I am up too. I am up and about because you know why? Why? I'm going out for dinner to a restaurant (gasps) tonight, a legit real-life freaking restaurant. (laughs) No way. <laughs> Feels like a lifetime. I know. How good is it that we can do that now? Who would have ever thought the day would come where you just get excited to go to a restaurant? No, restaurants are always exciting, but. I hope you're going to do your hair, babe. <laughs> I'm going to do it all. <laughs> I might even I'm put on some kidding. high heels beautiful. for all time's sake. Oh, stop it. You'll be like seven foot. <laughs> no, so I reckon that's definitely what we've got in common this week is that yes melburnians you will be celebrating along with us we finally have some freedoms back yes amazing hallelujah so let's get into our ep though let's get into it yeah let's i think that's probably the other thing that we've had in common because you and i have both watched the australian birth time documentary recently i actually went and saw it in a cinema, would you believe, last so year sometime. you. Yeah. <laughs> I know, with a couple of girlfriends and we made a night of it and it was really fun and I loved the documentary and then recommended it to you, obviously, and now we've both re-watched it recently. It's a great documentary about childbirth in Australia and birth trauma, really. It explores why an increasing number of women are emerging from their births physically and emotionally traumatised. It was so informative. What did you think? Oh, it was so informative. I learned so much. And as you just mentioned about, you know, the trauma that so many women are experiencing after giving birth, I think it was like a third of women leave their birth experience describing their birth as traumatic. And then two third of these women say it's because of what care providers are saying. I guess that we're not just saying, but are doing, you know, so Mm. that's a pretty, pretty scary statistic. Mm. And I agree. You know, we shouldn't be leaving our birth experiences feeling this way. I mean, personally, I had great birth experiences, so I am very lucky, but, you know, it's not the case for so many women. Yeah, but, you know, I would say, like, I I had a similar experience as well. I had a positive experience, but I did the research. I I was informed. I was empowered in a way, you know, but so many women aren't, and, and that's why there's so many coming out of this experience traumatised, which is just heartbreaking because 
childbirth is such a sacred experience and it and it should be positive and people should all have the education and the knowledge and the access to make sort of empowered decisions about their own experience. So the birth time documentary is where we discovered our guest today, Sharice Buzzacott. She shared a really kind of hard to hear birth experience of her own in the documentary, which was just so emotional. And she shares it again with us in this episode, but actually in so much raw and honest detail. I was so blown away. I know she was so open and so generous with her sharing. And I mean, as you mentioned, she did share this experience in that birth time documentary, but every time she would share her story again and again, surely like it doesn't get any easier. Yeah, It was, was, oh, it was heartbreaking. Yeah. She was so incredibly brave and such an open book. So we really think that you guys will enjoy listening to her and her stories, but it made us very aware of you know, the systemic problems in society for Aboriginal women and their birth choices, their rights and their maternal care access, or I should say lack of really, hence why we reached out to her and wanted to learn more about this, but also just more about her and her career and her bit about her traditional culture as well. Yeah, absolutely. So to give you more background on our wonderful guest today, Sharice Buzzacott, Sharice is an Aranda woman from Alice Springs, Northern Territory. She's a midwife and a very strong advocate for supporting and helping provide the right maternal care for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and their babies. She was actually the first student to graduate from the Australian Catholic University Bachelor of Midwifery Indigenous course. Mm. She's a mother herself and, as Soph mentioned, definitely has her own pregnancy and birth stories, which she very kindly shared with us. Yeah, she's a very inspiring woman. She's also involved in a number of different funds and organisations. She's a director at the Rodanthe Lipset Indigenous Midwifery Charitable Fund. That is a mouthful, (laughs) but we'll put some um, links in the show notes to all that we're talking about in this intro and throughout the episode because there's some great resources of information. But this particular organisation supports and assists Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are training to be midwives, much like her, and it helps increase their chance of completing their training because many of the students find it really challenging to complete their studies and meet all the additional expenses and also just being far away from their homes and families is really difficult for them. So this fund supports them in all of that. There's a really limited number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander midwives registered in Australia and this fund is changing that, which is amazing. Yeah, it is really incredible, isn't it? Mm. Okay, well, let's get into it. But before we do, we would just like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we record each and every episode of this podcast, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. We also want to pay our respects to their elders past and present. Let's hear from Sharice now. Here she is. Sharice, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy shift work, working as a midwife and being a mum, of course, amongst a whole lot of other amazing work that you do, which we're very eager to hear all about. Um, But welcome. How how are you going? Yeah, I'm going well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. As Soph mentioned, 
We are so looking forward to this chat today. Sharice, we always like to start off our conversations with our guests by asking, what did you want to be when you were growing up? So, yeah, so I've always had it in my mind that I was going to be working in health. My mum had me when she was very young, so she was about 18. My dad was 19, so they'd always kind of instilled in me that I would go into university, some sort of higher degree and, and, you know, kind of better myself as it was. So I focused around health, so I thought maybe nursing or being a doctor, that's kind of what was pushed towards me. And then I thought about maybe law. So I thought, oh, you know, it'd be interesting to be a lawyer. And that was my thought up until I was about 12 or 13. I was in year nine getting ready to go into senior school and I came across some people from the university came to speak to us here in Alice about career development because we had to have it fixed in our minds what we were going to do. And um, I heard about midwifery and I thought that sounded like a really good, I guess, role for me to take on because I wasn't really interested in nursing. I didn't really want to look after sick people and I thought looking after mums and babies would be fun so (laughs) I had that in my mind and that's what I focused on when I was going into my senior classes was I wanted to specialize and get a bit more focus around biology and health and you know that physical education around how your bodies work because I had it I had set my mind on being a midwife and I spoke I I spoke to lots of people about it and they were like midwifery midwifery do they still have midwives (laughs) and I said yeah you know it's a it's a it's actually a single degree now because It was very new in that you didn't have to study nursing to become a midwife, that you could just do it, you know, direct entry into midwifery. So, yes, I'll gladly claim that I wanted to be a midwife, so I pretty much, you know, dream fulfilled because that's my job today. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's awesome that your um, parents encouraged you into a career and into a world of health. Yeah, I'm really lucky because a lot of my family, you know, my mum and her cousins and even a few of my grandparents they're working in sort of like the administrative or policy side of around health and education so it was kind of always you're going to be in health or education or justice there was kind of all these good role models that I had around me but yeah mum and dad were saying you know you, you got to get out and make yourself make something of yourself because I feel like they you know they probably had similar dreams where they wanted to do really well and then had a family young and then kind of I guess, got stuck into that small town life of having a family and kind of raising kids here. So that was their goal for me. And um, yeah, I feel really proud to have had those role models. I bet. So we know that you're an Aranda woman from Alice Springs, Northern Territory, and you mentioned a few things there about your parents and your childhood, but can you tell us a bit more about that? Like where you were born and some more of your childhood experiences? Yeah, so I was born in Alice Springs, so I'm, I get to work at Alice Springs Hospital now and I was raised in Alice. I've lived here my pretty much my whole life until I started to get older and move away. We were growing up out west of Alice Springs, so at a place called Awupataka, or also known as Jay Creek Outstation. We've got a block of land there amongst many family blocks of land. My nana and pop were living out there, basically living out there in a shed, and they had a drop dunny and a shower, um, and we were out there more often than not, and eventually... We had some demountables come in, which are just kind of like, I guess, shipping container structures with, I guess, your basic beds and, you know, facilities and stuff in it. Yeah, then we got some houses built. So I'm lucky to be living out there now. I live in my Nana's house, who's since passed. And um, my mum lives close by. My mum and dad are close. My uncle and his kids are close. My brother lives with my mum and dad. And um, my sister is not too far away. So I've always got people around me. So I grew up with my family and I'm very close-knit with both sides of my family because 
like I said, there's many different blocks of land all kind of together where I'm living there. That's my Nana's country, but my mum's family, they're also all living in Alice Springs, so very family orientated. And yeah, growing up in Alice Springs, going to the local school here, just the local public schools. And, um, you know, so I have that vision for my kids now because I just had the best experience. And I feel like that's kind of where I want to put them in that same direction as well. Yeah. It's beautiful, beautiful that you are surrounded by a lot of your family still and, you know, you can raise the children on the land that you were raised. And Yeah, we've got a lot of like childhood memories of because we've got a river that runs right by our place. So when it rains during the summer, it tends to fill up with water. And so we have, you know, memories of swimming down there and my dad's getting an old tyre and us floating down and then making swing, you know, swings, swinging ropes from the trees and things like that. So getting to take the kids out down to the river, even in dry creek bed, we often have lots of little barbecues down there, just take a hot plate and make a fire and often we're sitting down there or we're climbing up the back hill, like all of these things that I used to do, making dirt paths with their bikes, like they've just got bikes last year. So all of these things that I used to do, I'm like, I really want them to try this and do this and um, that's really important and I feel like they, they'll have a good little upbringing because I know that I did. So I know that they'll have, you know, I just try and continue with what my parents showed me and taught me and, and then they get the opportunity to go out bush as well with their dad's side of their family. So I feel really lucky. So we want to talk more about your work as a midwife. How did you actually get into it, get into your studies? And you sort of talked a bit about what made you want to pursue it, but how did you go about getting into it? It was kind of like a bit of a um, a kind of like disjointed journey for me because I started and then I stopped. So I actually, when I was finishing year 12, I applied to university and I applied at Flinders because that was the university that came and spoke to us, you know, back in year nine. So I moved down there. I was living in Flinders in the campus and um, I was there for about six months. I wasn't doing really well because I just turned 18. I spent a lot of time up north uh, missing classes and, you know, just basically um, spending money here and there and running amok. My mum and dad were like, nah, we can't let this go on anymore. You have to come home and work and because they were, you know, kind of spent sending me money here and there. So, and I missed Alice terribly and I just, I felt really isolated and I had no support. So, I thought, yeah, I'll come back home. So I came back home, but I had always had it in my mind that I was going to finish university, like finish midwifery because that's what I wanted to do. After a few years of kind of working here and there and I, I started working at Centrelink doing some remote work and I absolutely loved it. There's a local women's health, Aboriginal women's health service here called Alukara and it used to be a birthing centre back in the 90s. They approached me and said, look, we're looking, we're thinking about getting some funding to get some student midwives to come and, you know, potentially train with us and then work with us later once they completed their degree. And I thought, yeah, no worries, I'll definitely come and advise you. So I I kind of sat with them and I helped them to sort of write up a plan and t- I talked about my experience. My experience was very negative and I suffered loneliness and, you know, I was feeling really um, homesick. So all of that I reported back and they said, they came to me and said, look, we've got these positions we want you to interview for them. So like a job interview, I went in and I interviewed for the job and having had that, I guess, that passion and having already started my degree before, I ended up getting one of the two positions with another local Aboriginal woman who she was working in media, so no health background. And then together we started um, at Alukra. They didn't have anything in place for what we were planning to do, but they already had the structures of doing an away from base program. So they supported us you know they 
provided us with some books. They provided part of our HEX costs, so there was no co- there was no cost to us. I opted to do placements in Melbourne and Adelaide, just larger hospital placements outside of Alice Springs, and they helped to support some of that. So partly some of myself playing and then some of Alucra supporting that. You know, we got laptops and it really was just a really good way that we could be supported to just, I, I just went in, basically I went in, everything was there for me and all I had to do was put in the work and study. So all of that excess stuff that comes along with going to uni was helped by um, Alucra, the hospital, um, through the university. I, I applied for various scholarships. I think I received at least two scholarships every year because I was just applying for everything. I really wanted to make the most of that experience. So I didn't get the whole on-campus experience, but this is what worked for me and my family at the time. A huge support, but, you know, good on you for pursuing it. Yeah. And, you know, and giving it your everything and applying for everything, like that takes a lot, so. I actually read that you spent a year working as an outreach midwife travelling to a remote community. Can you share with us a little bit more about this work and I guess what it entailed for you? So I come back to Alice Springs and I was working here after my grad year and I we started a new program. It was called Midwives Outbush and we, we called it MOB, M-O-B, because as midwives we love acronyms. So we had this MOB <laughs> clinic that was running. Um, there were about four of us in the team and we had kind of built a relationship with four different communities and some were non-government and the other, other couple were government. And the plan was to kind of go out every month for a few days, sometimes up to a week, and just visit with the women and um, do some antenatal and postnatal care. And then back in the hospital, we'd provide a midwife's clinic for those women that were coming in and we'd see them when they come in for their ultrasounds or if they had any sort of specialist follow-up. We'd see them when they come in for what's called sit-down. So sit-down is when women that are living in remote areas have to come into town and they come into town usually at 38 weeks, but 36 weeks if they're having high-risk pregnancy. 38 weeks, they're coming in and they kind of just sit down. What the word entails is they're waiting to have their baby. And usually they're staying in the hostels um, or hotels if they can afford it, and they're in town. And so we provide the, that ongoing weekly midwife support. And then because the four of us that were involved, we were working as, um, we were all kind of, I guess, senior midwives, but we were all working as team leaders. So Every time a woman would come in in labour, she would be guaranteed to have one of us care for her. So it was it's kind of like a continuity of care model as such. And it's so important, I think, when you're going to give birth. Yeah, definitely. The, we had that relationship with women that they could that they can come in and actually ask for us by name. If not us, then one of us who knows about their you know extensive social history or their extensive pregnancy issues. Yeah, they can speak to one of us, and so. I was going out to Yundamu, which is about 360 kilometres west of Alice Springs. Before going out, I did my women's health training, so I was accredited to do pap smears. You know, I did contraception, I did implanon, insertion and removal. I did a lot of um, STI screening. I did a lot of, like, infertility um, education around infertility for some women that were wanting to have babies and couldn't. And then the maternity side of things, so I was doing pregnancy and then I was doing baby checks for babies when they come back with their mums and I was getting that little feel of living in remote. So, you know, when you're out there, you're pretty isolated. You have only the clinic that you work with. But I got to have a really good, strong connection with some of the women and I even I see them now today having their 
you know, third or fourth babies and I just always oh. checking in with them and um, I love the opportunity to go back out. So I'm I'm back working in the mob clinic now. With an, oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm back in the same clinic with an aim to, to go back out to community. So at least at the start of next year, I've still got my my youngest son is still breastfeeding. So I kind of just kind of wait and see what he's going to do. And then I'll plan to go back out again, maybe overnight or two nights a week or something just during the month. Yeah. So I really love going out bush. It's, it's just a whole different um, atmosphere when you go out into those remote Mm. places and you really get an idea of how desolate and how much people are just kind of, they're really in despair, but also the richest of the culture, like the opportunity to go, you know, to go out hunting and to go walking and to hear the stories of the local land. And it really is just eye-opening for anyone who wants to to do it. Yeah, I encourage all midwives when mm. I speak with them anytime I'm always like, if you can go to remote, a remote setting, if you can, because it really does just broaden your awareness of the issues that women face outside of their pregnancy. The pregnancy might be the number 10 issue on a list of 10 things, you know, like it's the very bottom issue for that woman because there's so much other things going on for them. It sounds like it must be like an amazing experience but really fulfilling work because for the women in remote communities or, you know, for the women that can't access hospitals or care like you're talking about, like what are they doing? So so most of the communities have a remote area midwife who travels and covers an extensive area so, so she might be there like one week out of the month or she might be there right. two weeks, you know, every two months. So for those women that don't always get to be seen by a qualified practitioner, like they're seeing nurses, they're seeing GPs, but they're not necessarily midwife trained. So, you know, it's sometimes they can be misdiagnosed when they're coming in. There's a lot of fear. So I do some training with remote area staff around maternity emergencies. And when I talk to them, they actually have a lot of fear about birth. That's the most terrifying thing. They can, you know, car crash, assault, anything like that, they can handle. But when it comes to someone, a woman in labour, they just, they freak out. They really are fearful right. of birth. And they're fearful of the things that come with birth, which is potential bleeding and managing that in a remote setting and also having a baby. Most babies born out bush are born early unless the woman's chose not to come in you know, having a baby who they then have to resus, so they end up with having, you know, two patients that they have to deal with. So often is the case that women, they're not getting the appropriate care and then it really is kind of just really straightforward, you know, blood pressure, fetal heart, how are you, baby's moving, that's kind of the care. They're not getting any education around what they should be eating, you know, like what screening's going to be done for their pregnancy. Mm-hmm birth education around birth so like being upright in birth breastfeeding you know this this postnatal yeah, as well I'd the screening that we do for baby when you're in hospital what to do if your baby goes to the nursery all of these things that you know you and I would get in a clinic yeah they kind of gaps in the education so by the time they get to me in the mob clinic I'm just flat out like sometimes I'm booking them just for an education appointment just come in and just I'm just kind of drilling all this in information into them and often that's a barrier as well because those women you know from out bush speak in a different language they have a little bit of um, lesser understanding of you know medical terminology even just me myself talking to them sometimes I don't even understand things like induction of labor you know what's induction it's not a word that they've ever known so 
the fact that you can go and have that communication with every individual woman and her family to find out what their individual needs and I guess and and expectations are and then that gives you the chance to you know be able to accommodate that when they do come to hospital is so important because then ultimately maybe their birthing outcome will be a more positive experience for them. Yeah, well, there's definitely a connection between your emotional and your mental state to how well you do in birth, how well you bond with your baby, how well you breastfeed, you know, production of milk. Your psychological definitely affects your physiological state. Mm. Things like women having to come in, they're always coming on on their own so they have no support. Usually they're leaving older children behind so, you know, they're not happy with who their children are being left with. Their partners often don't come with them and so there's that added kind of stress of their partner wants them home with their kids, he's now left with the family. So, you know, there's all of these different things that I couldn't imagine myself going, leaving my family and leaving my partner to go and birth in another town. Like that to me is just unreal, whereas it's so kind of, I guess, that's kind of the way it is and that has to be expected and that's what I try and that's what I'm trying to talk to people about is this is this is not the way it should be. It really mm. needs to be, we need to be looking at women and looking at their family as a whole. You know, we, we talk about holistic care in, in midwifery when we're doing our training and holistic care is, you know, it does include their parents, it includes their siblings, their kids, their partners. And so, yeah, we just, I'm, we're just really trying to just fill that little bit of gap that's there, but it's very difficult because, you know, obviously there's so much against us, you know, funding, time, yeah, the medicalization of birth and all of that, you know, you can get right into it. There's so much that's happening that affects our ability to just be, just to just do our job and just to, I guess, to talk to women and care for them and support them the best we can. Was it clear to you before you even pursued your study or, or pursued your early career that there was a socio-cultural lack in the maternity system for Aboriginal women and mothers, even just to access this right kind of maternity care that you're talking about or is it something that you learnt along the way? I had some awareness of I guess the plight of women because I from being a local person I understood that women had to travel from out bush to have their babies so I did have that understanding and I do know just from being Aboriginal myself but also from stories the disparities between women, well, not even just women, but Aboriginal people, the disparities between Aboriginal people to non-Indigenous people in the health system anyway. So that's Mm. kind of known Mm. knowledge, you know, that I kind of grew up with and experienced that and I've experienced racism and all of that in hospital growing up. The whole, I guess, it was getting down into what the nitty-gritty, like what are the problems, it definitely was eye-opening to learn about it through my studies and I was really lucky because I've actually been under the the watch of an Aboriginal midwife who was my lecturer. She was kind of, she kind of took the away from base model and she was our lead lecturer and she's still involved in the program and she's a very good friend of mine now and she's definitely a mentor. And she was the one who was kind of, she would speak openly about these are the issues that Aboriginal women are facing. So, you know, I feel like if I had a non-Indigenous lecturer, I probably wouldn't have got that. Even though we were an Aboriginal midwifery group, I probably wouldn't have got that much of an insight because we were able to talk openly and honestly in our group because we were all Aboriginal. So I guess she shared her experiences from working as a midwife and and looking after Aboriginal families and some of the work she's done in Brisbane with, you know, some of the homeless community and also working with women um, affected by drugs. And so she kind of 
helped to open my eyes to all of that. Yeah. We'd like to talk to you a little bit about birthing on country. Can you explain to us in your words what this term and tradition means? Yeah, so birthing on country, I first heard about it when I was in my first year. It would have been back in 2010 or maybe 2009. But basically the birthing on country, it's not the physical aspect of birthing per se, like birthing out under a tree, birthing on country on your own traditional lands. Birthing on country kind of encompasses more about feelings and connection that the woman has towards her care, towards her midwife, you know, towards the even the physical location. So she might be in a hospital setting, but she can still have a birthing on country model of care. And basically it uses Aboriginal ways of knowing and doing. And then in partnership with obviously working in the ways of the white system. And how can we facilitate the best cultural care for the woman? So the birthing on country is determined by what the woman's needs are and what she what she wants. Mm. It's not going to be, you know, she wants to have the ability to labour outside. That should be accessible to her. It's all about allowing the women to just kind of be in their setting and space and we're just providing that support and up- uplifting them. But it really is Aboriginal midwives providing traditional care. You know, it's all about family. It incorporates the partners, it incorporates other children and also their families. It incorporates women's business. So it's all about women caring for this woman using their own traditional methods. And it is all about this, I guess, this, the cultural and spiritual connection that the woman's feeling. So you can be in a hospital setting or you can be in a birth, um, you know, like a birth clinic or you can be at home and you can have a birthing on country experience because you're encompassing all of these different all of these different aspects and most women Aboriginal women that I know and that I've looked after they are just categorized as high risk so if you're Aboriginal you're high risk before your medical history is even explored you're high risk just by being Aboriginal you know whether that means your access to hospital is affected you know uh, transport anything really, there's always going to be some high-risk aspect of it, whether it's social or medical. And it's kind of getting rid of all of those biases, breaking down all those barriers so that at the end of the day it's woman, midwife, working in collaboration with what the woman's needs are and what she requires. But, yeah, just know it's not the physical aspect of birthing, you know, because we, we want to support women to birth in their traditional country and that's what we're aiming for it was looking like five years, it's looking like 10 or 20 years now just because there's been so much pushback. We want to be able to support women the best that they can. So when they're coming in for sit-down, they're not staying at a hostel, they're not on their own, they're staying at a family unit or some sort of accommodation provided to them where they have, you know, five or six of their family members staying with them and their kids have the ability to stay with them as well. They're able to have some of the traditional, I guess, things that, happen during birth which you can't do in a hospital setting but they're able to then participate in some sort of you know cultural ceremony that's significant to them having a baby Mm. and then yeah it's just about listening to the community what do the community want when it comes to birthing and that's basically what the birthing on country movement is that's what we did when we started birthing on country is we just went out and just spoke to women and just got all their stories gathered all their stories and and we just said look the women, this is what they want and 
can you make it happen? And it's been, yeah, like I said, a big big pushback from different areas. How important is it to you to be part of this project and initiative that you're talking about? It's like so important because my my involvement is first and foremost as an Aboriginal person, as an Aboriginal woman. Second to me is the fact that I'm a midwife. Maybe even third to me the fact now because when I started in Birthing on Country, working in the project, I didn't have kids at the time. I was pregnant and then so from that aspect I was an Aboriginal woman, then I was a mother and then I'm a midwife. So that's kind of my view is that whatever work we roll out, that affects me because I'm, you know, I'm still childbearing age. I could go on to have, you know, two or three more kids. And so for me, that's important for me to have that experience. And I'm lucky mm. that I I work in a setting where I have an understanding, you know, more than others. I have an understanding of how the, the system works. So, you know, I can pick my midwife. I can allocate someone that I want to see during clinic because I have the ability to do that because I'm employed, you know, in that model. So, but if potentially the way I look at it is, you know, I would love the opportunity to be able to birth even 30 minutes up the road, 30 minutes away is that 30 minutes is where I live, you know, like why can't I have the opportunity to birth on my traditional country when I'm just only so close to town, but you know, the powers that be have determined that no, that's considered to be a regional or remote area that I have to be birthing in hospital. So everything I do affects me and it affects my family directly. So when I think about things, I think about it, yeah, I look through the lens as an Aboriginal woman first and that's how I see birthing on country impacting me. It's not, it's it's very personal to me. So when I see researchers that are working on birthing on country or non-Indigenous people that are working in Aboriginal organisations that are, they're all, it's great. We love allies. They're so supportive. They want to be involved in birthing on country. That's great. But this is something personal to me. So let so step back and let me, you know, take control or let me have a have a say because I understand that it is a personal thing for me. It does affect me. Well, like you were saying about the woman that you considered a mentor because of her personal experiences, that was so much more meaningful to you. It's like what you're saying now. Yeah, definitely. It's, it stays and it stays with you. It's the, it yeah. stays with you, you know, all of these things that people say to you and you hear about all these experiences, it, it definitely impacts you because I think, crap, that could have been me or, you know, yeah. that could be my kids in the future, my daughter in the future, that could happen to her. So making a change is like, yeah, super, super important. Mm, agree. Sharice, can you tell us more about traditional birthing practices and ceremonies? And obviously, understandably, there's a lot of diversity between the different language groups and the practices probably differ quite significantly, but we'd love to hear more about this. Yeah, so, I mean, little the little knowledge that I do have is very local to Central Australia. And then there's some of the things that I don't, that I don't talk about, not because I I don't want to, but because I can't, because, you know, there's women's business and um, is very sacred to women. And so that withholding all of this knowledge, you know, you have to be within a certain, you have to be considered to be part of that group to have some kind of standings to be able to be told things like that. So, you know, there's different things that we're doing, you know, one of the most important thing and the well-known thing is the baby smoking ceremony, which takes place after the baby's born. and also women that are pregnant because we see smoke as a healing like you know most indigenous cultures smoke and fire has very very much got a lot of healing property like healing power so you know um, participating in things like smoking ceremonies for babies and um, mothers participating in smoking ceremony to increase their milk supply there are traditional ways of 
their traditional ways of cutting the cord and uh, using fire and there's also different ways of I guess singing babies into to being born so traditionally like years and years ago before the settlers came what would happen was women would birth that have their own special camp and so that birth away from the men so the men would have their camp the women would have their camp and then the women would birth and that'd be supported by a traditional midwife they'd be supported by their grandmother and their mother and their aunties and sisters so it'd be all their family that would be close by and they would sing the baby to be born and so using different sing like song and dance the men would dance they'd use a lot of um like celebration like in welcoming the baby and then the men were always close by so they were they were far enough that they were out of sight but close enough that the women could hear and so the woman who's who's in birth would actually hear the husband he would be singing out and he'd actually wow. be calling oh. the baby to be born and then they'd hear the baby's cries and then there'd be a massive celebration afterwards but then the woman and the men wouldn't see each other so it would be you know at least the time of that sort of first bit of bleeding after you have your baby so we say you know six to eight weeks it could be that long before before the husband actually gets to see the woman because they're just kind of she's having that sort of post postpartum period where she's having her bleeding and stuff so once that was finished then they'd reunite that's kind of the stories that I've heard when I've been working at Alukra and they're kind of some of the things that we were able to document some of the stories from some of the the grandmothers that I worked with who are um, most of them have now passed on they were traditional midwives and they did actually birth women out in the bush so they were able to support women and and you know, just using some of the techniques and you know things where babies getting, you know, babies get stuck, or you know, if the baby wasn't rotating properly, there's different techniques that the grandmothers would use, and use of bush medicine. But they're they're like the biggest ones, I guess. Mm. It's like the power of fire and smoke, which you can't use that in hospital. The opportunity to have a larger support system around you, which is important. So you know, I spoke with one one woman and. She had opted to have, you know, seven or eight people around her. They were all connected to her in some way. Now, the hospital, especially these days with COVID, is very much restricting how many people can attend a birth room. So that is something that goes out the window almost instantly, that they can't have their, you know, seven or eight people that surround them because each person plays a part. Each person is given a role in what they'll do. So one woman's role is to get the water. The other woman's role is to maybe provide cooling cloth for the woman the other woman's job is to you know light the fire and maintain the fire so there's all these um jobs that women are allocated and then um just the use of song the use of dance being used during birth and after birth and then you know there's things around placental burial and using the placenta as medicine which i which i won't talk about because like i said it's different in different um areas but you know all of these skills are being lost because these traditional midwives unfortunately some of them passed away and we're not able to document as much as we'd like to and we're hoping that those things can be revived through birthing on country is sort of getting back and talking to some of the women that have the knowledge Mm. and documenting it and then how can we incorporate it into a mainstream you know setting how can we then bring that back how how can we incorporate it or alter it so that it's suitable to the woman but also suitable to what the hospital or the clinic settings are. It's so beautiful to hear some of those traditions and, you know, I, I completely agree with with that tradition in saying that, you know, 
childbirth is absolutely the most sacred women's business and, you know, it really makes me understand why, you know, modern Aboriginal women would find it so disjointed to have to then birth in, you know, a very clinical and very patriarchal way that, you know, that our society provides. It's so disjointed and um, and it makes a lot of sense why there is a, lo- a huge lack in understanding there. It's definitely, um, you know, the white walls and very medical and all of that kind of stands out. It's very much that sort of first physical of coming into a clinic or coming into a hospital and there's a hospital bed in the middle of the room, there's a recess cot there, there's a cupboard full of equipment. It, it You know, for most women that's an intimidating space and some women don't even act, will only ever access hospital in their whole life during their pregnancy and never at any other time. So all of these women that are coming in might be experiencing the hospital for the very first time and then, you know, straight away off the bat they are, we're put in positions of power because we have the knowledge of the space and, mm. you know, where they're telling them this is what you should do in your pregnancy and in your birth. And so already we've taken that aspect of power away from them. They're, they're defenceless. The women are just pretty much they're going to say and do whatever we tell them to do and that how can we give informed choice when the woman, she has no choice, she's going to just go along with what we say because she has no power or anything to be able to stand up and say, no, this is what I want to do. That's just the setting that has been created over the years and the services that are put in place, I always talk about Yeah, it's a healthcare setting that's put onto us. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a forced service that we have to participate in. It's something that was already set up. They took it from here and went, here you go, this works over here, so this is going to work for you. Yeah. When in fact it, it's kind of like this is the end of it and we're not going to talk about it any further. The changes that can be made long term, they might be costly in the beginning, but long term you'll see if cost is an issue, the costs are going to be so much more, you know, so much more cost saving when it comes to providing the services that we want because you're going to get less, you know, less admissions to hospital, less women going back to community and having to be flown back in at, you know, $10,000 a flight or whatever it is. You're going to get more engagement so that women and babies are less sick so that they're not in hospital more of the time. You know, there's all these different costs that can be covered if, if that's going to be the issue to put these, to put things in place. You know, the risks we can, we can even look at different models around Indigenous communities in, you know, First Nations Canada and what they're doing up there. They've been birthing up there for 15 years now in their own country. And the really their risks and, and intervention, medical intervention has dropped significantly and it just we just really need those strong people in our government and other places yep. to just be like, yes, we're going to commit to this and if it doesn't work, you know, we'll call it a day, but let, let's at least give it a go. It's like they're already shutting down that idea of birthing on country before it's even begun. We'd love to put the focus back on you now and hear about your personal birthing experiences if you're comfortable with talking about this. Can you start by sharing your first birth story with us? Yeah, so um, I don't know if I've made this clear in the beginning, but my twin sons, they're not my biological sons. Okay. So I was grateful enough to to have them come and start living with us about three years ago. So I moved back from Canberra from the Birthing on Country project I was working on. They were about three years old and they came to live with us. I've been very blessed to be a, um, a mum to them and have them living with us. So my first birth was actually my daughter in 2017. So when I went over to 
to work on the Birthing on Country project, I was pregnant. I was probably about eight weeks pregnant at the time. So I had to have the conversation and say, look, hey, guys, I'm pregnant and, you know, I'll have a baby. And then I think it was about, it was probably about, I'd been travelling a lot and I'd been doing a lot. I was about 20 weeks, yeah, I was almost 21 weeks pregnant and um, I was sitting at home with, with my partner and I started to get pain. I said, look, I've been getting this little achy pain coming and going and it, and it was coming and going like you would expect in, in a, in a labour. And so we went off to the emergency department of the hospital and so there was no review by an obstetrician or anyone in the ONG. It was kind of like an emergency doctor saw me and said, and did an ultrasound and showed me the baby's heartbeat and said, look, here's the heartbeat, you're fine, here's the Panadol. By that time, my pain had resolved. I went home. You know, I I wanted to ask questions. I should have, I think back now, maybe I should have asked questions and I didn't. An ultrasound means nothing to me unless you know exactly what you're looking at. So early hours of the morning, like 7am, I woke up in excruciating pain, called an ambulance, my first ever trip in an ambulance. I went along to the hospital and I was telling them, like, I'm in labour, I'm in pain. Um, Unfortunately, I was, like, 20 weeks and four days pregnant at the time. I just had my 20-week scan, like, the day before, so I was able to give them the correct dates and everything. At the time, they didn't do a cervical, like, they didn't do a cervix, a length measurement, which, looking back, I probably should have asked for it because I've got a history of having miscarriage, so I'd had a miscarriage I'd had a missed miscarriage and then I'd had a miscarriage and then I was pregnant with my daughter and then yeah so I that was um like pretty traumatic experience all in all that sort of first part of not being not feeling like I'm being heard or not being listened to my partner was there he kind of felt really defenseless and I just felt like no one's listening I'm you know I feel like I'm in trouble I'm I'm in labor I know I shouldn't be I know my daughter's you know She's not going to make it if she's born us way too early. And um, thankfully everything calmed down, but I had a scan later that day, so that was the morning. And then later that day they said, oh, look, I'd already known that I'd ruptured my membrane, ruptured my membranes. I was leaking fluid all day. And they said, look, we can see that, you know, your cervix is actually open and it's not too far off from her being born. So that was hard accepting that. And that was kind of like a bit of a sleepless night the next, that night and we were moved into this family room it was really lovely big family room it had a bathtub it had a separate kitchen like it was really welcoming it was lovely it had a big double bed you know so we kind of hung about there and doctors were coming in and said look we're probably going to induce you tomorrow because there's a high risk of infection so I already decided to become septic and develop a fever and with having my waters broken so the next day they said oh look we'll get things going and my mum was flying over that day to come over and get to support us and then um yeah I think it was around two o'clock in the afternoon I started to get excruciating pain so they'd given me pain relief and I started having lots of pain and I had this beautiful midwife she came in and she said oh look we'll have a little look now and she said and she did the assessment and you know looked down and she said oh look she's not too far away now so I just said oh you know I was worried I was more stressed because my mum wasn't there because I thought oh she's going to miss out but you know, I said to my partner, I was worried about what he would think because I'd I'd seen babies born early and I've been involved in lots of women that have had miscarriages that, you know, I've seen babies at 14 weeks, I've seen babies at 18 weeks. Just before I'd left Alice Springs to work away, I actually had seen a baby that was born at 21 weeks. So I was, I, I kind of knew in my head what I was going to expect. And so I was too busy trying to tell him and calm him and settle him about you know potentially what the baby would look like when she was born knowing that she was going to be very small and 
you know, just little and just all of that. So just probably about half an hour later she was birthed. Like it was an amazing experience. You know, I held her in my chest. My partner was there. You know, it felt really as traumatic and sad as it was, it felt for me like this is what I would have loved because he was with me, I was there, I had a midwife and it was just a really nice, intimate, close little experience. We had my daughter, she was there with us and then we kind of just were just there with her. We, it felt like forever. It feels like ages now when I think back to it but it was probably about two hours that, you know, the midwife said about started doing things and my partner, he he was, you know, cradling my daughter and he would say like, oh, she's having a breath or we were so adamant and I felt her little cord and I could feel her cord pulsating and I said, and I was like, she's still here, she's still with us and, you know, it was just lovely. Like I just, as traumatic and sad as it was, I look back at it now and I think I would not want it to happen any other way in any other setting. Yeah, so we just spent those few hours together and um, like in most preterm births there was no the placenta the placenta would not come away so it was taking ages so I they started me on oxytocin and all of this and all of these things happening and so over the course of those few hours I ended up having a big bleed over the few hours and so they said look we've got to take you off to theatre that was about so she was born about three and so they about 9 30 they said 9 30 in the night they said oh well look we're gonna have to take you off to theatre now and by that time, my mum, who was being picked up by a friend, were coming to the hospital. And I said to my friend, like, she's here, don't tell my mum, because I didn't want my mum to get upset. And then my, I remember being on the bed, getting ready to go into feet, like the hospital bed, to go around to the theatre. And my mum walking in and I said to her, oh, she's here. And my mum was kind of like, excited. But then she was like, okay, I'm confused. Like, what's going on? Mm. And then I got whisked away to theatre and here I am telling the the anaesthetic that I can feel the placenta coming out. I'm saying the placenta's coming out, I can feel it. And she's going, yep, it'll be all over soon. She puts the mask on me and I fall asleep. And then I found out later on that the consultant said, yeah, we opened, we lifted up the sheet and the placenta was there. So, but anyway, it was it was all fine. It was all good. I came back from theatre and my mum and them had ordered pizza and my good friend was there and we just kind of all hung out and, so I named my daughter Senna. We got to dress her. We took some photos. And the next day my mum surprised us with my sister flying in. So they said, let's go for a walk downstairs, walk downstairs, see my sister. So I felt really special that my mum and my sister got to meet Senna because most of our family didn't. And so, yeah, a lot of different, like, roller coaster up and down. The days following we got to spend with her. I remember one time we went back to my apartment we went back to my unit and we obviously left Senna at the hospital and so we went off and she was in a, one of those little cuddle cots which has the cooled mattress and we were gone and I just remember looking at the time and thinking, oh, my God, I just need to get back. I need to get back. I can't stand the fact that she's there all by herself. And I remember just going like we need to rush back and, and my partner and I going, yeah, no, nah, we need to get back. I'm missing her as well. And then getting back to the hospital and, yeah, just just being with her and just enjoying that time and getting, you know, lots of phone calls and messages. And we didn't tell a lot of people that that I'd had her. We just kept that quiet and we had a plan that we, my sister was going to travel back to Alice Springs. We wanted Senna to be buried in Alice Springs. And so we had a plan that 
she would fly back with my sister so she would never be alone so she'd be with my sister on the flight and then when she got back to Alice she went to the funeral home and then we within a week we packed up my car and we drove back to Alice my partner and I and then within a week later we held a small little funeral for her out at the cemetery and it was like the most beautiful day like it was the perfect weather you know we had all of our close family and friends there and then yeah I just remember thinking afterwards like oh we should have taken photos and you know all of this but at the time you're not thinking about that no but I do have a little memory box of keepsakes and you know things that I've accumulated and I take my boys out there we're probably out there at least once a month these days when we can and we just go out there we take a picnic we put our blanket out there's a memorial garden for babies that are born stillborn or past where they can spread where some families can spread ashes if they want to and so the boys play on the rocks and there's a big mulberry tree and they climb up and get the mulberries and I take out a cloth and a bucket and I just kind of clean the headstone and lay flowers and toys and you know Christmas and things we're always taking different gifts for her and my boys they they appreciate that they have a sister they know that she passed away when she was a baby and they when we go past the cemetery we drive out to the airport they'll say there's yayi senna yayi just means sister in their language and then they'll say look oh can we go out and see senna or can we go out and spend the day so yeah that was kind of my first experience of um having a baby and I you know and I just think remember thinking to myself like I'm a midwife it's not supposed to be like this like it really should be you know, I need to get to full term and I need to have a natural birth and, and everything needs to be fine and dandy. So to experience that while I was working in the Birthing on Country project, that was like, like I'd already had a passion for it, but that experience for me was like, no, things need to change. Things need to happen because there were different intervals and different things. All of my engagements with the hospital where things could have been 50% better I would have had a better outcome and I always think back at that and so this kind of work is very personal to me because you know I know that it's going to make a change for other women so that they don't have to have a negative experience that I experienced where you know I had doctors talking down to me and I had a midwife who didn't want to listen to what I was saying knowing who I was and knowing that I myself was a midwife you'd think there would be some kind of you know collegiality between you in that I'll look after her a bit better because she's kind of one of us, but there was nothing like that. It really Did they was know just... that you were a midwife? Yeah, so the midwife who was looking after me, I actually used to work with her and she knew straight off the bat. Once I started to settle when I had been given pain relief and things had settled down, I was waiting for my ultrasound and they let my I let my partner go back home for a sleep. I had one of my good friends staying with me and I remember not being asleep but having my eyes closed, resting, and the midwife coming in and saying, oh, if Sharice is looking for a job, she can. She's always welcome to come and work here. Oh, <laughs> you're thinking um... like I was. I had my eyes closed. <laughs> Insane, you people. I thought, and I, and I thought, am I processing this right? Like, am I really hearing this midwife coming in, going, "Oh, I told my boss that she's a midwife, and now you know she, she's she's like, you're welcome to come and work here." Like, I'm going through one of the most traumatic experiences that I've ever had in my whole life. And you're in here kind of, you know, chin wagging and how talking bizarre. about how you, how you used to work with me. and it's disgusting. 
Really? Yeah, how insensitive and <laughs> like God. it really. Yeah, I think back at it now, and I just think, what was she thinking? Like, yeah. there's no sense in anything that they were saying, and I kind of just got left. And so my good friend who was there, who used to be a midwife, she works in policy. She she was helping me go to the toilet. You know, she was the one who was there changing my pads. You know, she was helping me through this, and I thought, this is this isn't how it's supposed to be. Like, where's my midwife at? I haven't seen her for like an hour. I rang the bell. One point I went to the bell and I went to the toilet and another midwife came in, someone who I didn't know, and she said, oh, she's like, oh, just pop a towel into the toilet just in case she falls into the toilet. What? I'm like, there's no like sympathy or, you know, empathy or. No care. There's no, no care. Thought. Yeah, it was just kind of like I feel like if I felt that at that time, if I walked out of the hospital, they wouldn't even really care. They wouldn't even really notice. I thought I could just walk out now and just give birth in the car park and go home. You know, it kind of was that feeling. And so it's all of those emotions and things that come, you know, that come with that. Yeah. So it's a lot to revisit now, but I feel like, you know, I'm so, I'm so much stronger now in my ability to talk about things. Thank you for share, sharing that with us so openly. Like I just yeah, have to say that I, yeah, really appreciate that. Yeah, an experience so close to your heart. And it, and it's so inspiring to hear you speak about an experience like that in such a, you know, positive and, and heartfelt way. Like obviously you've expressed that it was a huge roller coaster and there was some major ups and downs. But, you know, the, the way that you have fond memories and the way that you just explained it in such a beautiful way is um, truly inspiring. And yeah, we're very, very, very grateful for you sharing that experience with us. So thank you. I'm assuming you then went on to have your baby boy, Angus, in January of 2020. What was your experience like this time? Yeah, so obviously it was a totally different, whole different other experience. I came back to Alice Springs and um, I found that I was pregnant unexpectedly, so I always thought there would be some difficulty in having a baby. And in between having Senna and Angus, I did have another miscarriage. I think I was about seven or eight weeks then. And so, yeah, we kind of weren't trying, but we weren't not trying. And then I found that I was pregnant with Angus, and so we didn't really get excited. It was kind of strange. Probably until I was about 36 weeks, that's when I kind of started to really process and feel happy and feel good about it. You know, I'd have people coming over and I'd actually, I'd put stuff over my stomach, like I'd cover myself with a blanket because I hated people talking about me, me being pregnant. I didn't, I just didn't feel like, you know, I didn't want to believe or we didn't want to jinx it. You know, I talk about my, talk about it with my partner and he says, we just didn't want to jinx that anything would bad would go because, you know, it was only a week before that I'd made an announcement and said I was pregnant and then I lost Senna. So we kind of kept it quiet and he was all off of the big announcement. He said, I don't want you to tell anyone. So it took us ages before we started to tell people. And we started telling them when I was about, I was probably about 28 weeks. I felt comfortable. So when I was about 28 weeks, we started to share the news that we were having a baby. I was lucky enough that I work at the Alice Springs Hospital. So I had said to a couple of my good friends there, like, I really want you to be, I really want you to be looking after me. I want to have my antenatal care with you. Um, so I was lucky enough to be able to choose my midwives and we would schedule, I was working casually at the hospital we would schedule appointments around when we would both be on shift or maybe I'd come in um, on a day off and we'd do a quick little antenatal visit there 
and then Micah, my partner, would come along and, you know, that would be my care. And I was diagnosed with GDM in my pregnancy, so we have a special diabetic education clinic that was set up because we have a high lot of diabetes in our communities. So I was referred to the DANCE, it's called DANCE Diabetic and Antenatal Care and Education. I was referred to them and um, one of the doctors who leads it is a good friend of mine. I've worked with her my whole career. And so there was some a kind of like a shared care arrangement where I would send my blood sugars via text or email to my doctor. She would then give me feedback the next day on whether I had to um, increase my insulin. So I was on just overnight insulin because my fasting sugars, they were probably the, the ones that were the worst. And so she would, you know, help me with my medication and then I'd, I'd let her know I'd see my midwife at the end of the week or the following week and she would just kind of read up on the notes and just review my chart when um, her clinic was running. So I had a really good experience. Unfortunately, they said, look, uh, you know, as it is with most women that have diabetes, is there's a high risk of being induced. And so that's what was told to me. You'll be induced when you get to 38 weeks. Um, you know, you're going to have another growth scan. So I had a couple of growth scans. And then we set a, we set a time for when I would go in to have an induction. And that was, a, I guess, a funny kind of experience as well because I... I guess because I had the knowledge and the power, I was able to kind of extend things out a little bit more. So the day they wanted me to go in, I pushed it back. So I pushed back like a few days. And then when I went in and I had my assessment, I said, again, I don't want to have it today. I want to come in tomorrow. So I was able to negotiate certain things with them around what was working best for us. Um, and then I went in and I was, yeah, they started my induction. So I had my waters broken. He was very high head. So he was not showing any signs of coming anytime soon. And then I had both my midwives, Claire and Pippa, kind of alternating, communicating to each other that one was going to come in in the beginning of the induction, the other one was going to come and take over, and then vice versa. They were just going to kind of have a break in between and cover each other. So um, I didn't have a birth plan or anything because my experience is if you plan, stuff goes to crap. So I had a few things that I'd listed that I wanted just simple things that people would know, like Micah was going to cut the cord, things like that. We wrote that up on the board and we were in there and I, I said, look, I want to have a couple of hours to see if the water's breaking, gets things going. And we spent some time walking around the hospital and just being in the room together and nothing happened. And eventually they said, look, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll get started with the drip. So started on the oxytocin. And that, that's lethal stuff. That's powerful stuff. Like, honestly, I take my hat off to women that have to be induced with that because it's like you go from this sudden bliss and excitement of, okay, we're getting ready to have this baby to just the most intense, you know, pain that you've ever experienced in your whole life. Like, that's what it felt like. I honestly thought, I thought I'm close to death. I could die. In that minute that I was having that contraction, I still remember it. I don't remember the pain, but I remember the feelings that I had, which was, yeah, this is the most horrible thing that you could ever experience. And just getting my head around the fact that I was being induced, like this isn't a natural labour where you have this blissful little kind of build up towards that pain where you can actually manage it. You're not in your head so much and you just manage it well. Whereas I, I went from, you know, just a regular everyday experience to now I'm having, you know, extensive contractions. They're lasting two minutes. They're every three minutes. Like that's quite, you know, a unique experience. So that part of it was I didn't enjoy, but the actual 
being in the atmosphere, I was upright, I was sitting on the ball, I was sitting on the stool. Micah's arms were partly dead because he just, I wouldn't let him stop massaging my back. So every time I get a contraction, he'd be on my back massaging my back. Um, I had my own Spotify playlist that I had my own little, you know, songs that I'd picked out. Um, we had the room nice and dim. And then I didn't know at the time, but my midwife had said, so I was on, I was having continuous monitoring because I was being induced. So she turned the CTG away from me. So the CTG is the monitoring machine. I turned, they turned the monitor away from me. So I couldn't see. So I didn't know what was happening. So it almost felt like I was in a kind of natural sort of atmosphere. And then, yeah, that kind of went on for like eight hours, nine hours. They did a vaginal examination and checked my cervix. It was unchanged. So they gave me another, you know, two hours to, they really pushed the oxytocin. You know, the pain got more intense. I was up on the bed. Um, I had a couple of midwives come in who were in charge, who I'd met, just come and say hello. And I thought, okay, you're coming in saying hello. What does that mean for me? You know, does that mean that something's going to shit? Because they didn't tell me anything. They just let me continue on with the labour. What was happening was he was actually getting distressed. So he's, we had a rising baseline, so his heart rate was rising. I wasn't coping with the pain. I didn't know at the time. They actually turned the oxytocin off probably about 45 minutes before they decided to do an, another examination. By then I was actually in established labour. One of the consultants who came in and she was a great doctor who I'd worked with since I was a student. So I started with her at Alucra. We worked together then and I had a lot of trust in her. I saw her at the beginning of my pregnancy. So when I was seven weeks pregnant, I went in and I asked for this doctor. I gave her my file. It was about that thick. And I said, here you go. And she put a plan in place, knowing that I had infertility, had a history of miscarriage, had had previous history of losing a baby early. You know, she said, we're going to do a circlage, which is a cervical stitch. We're going to do that at 20 weeks, then she changed her mind and said, no, we're going to do it when you're 18 weeks. We're going to have extensive monitoring. We're going to do this, this, and this. So this same doctor came on and I was very happy for it. And she said, look, Sharice, I think, I think we've, we've tried our best now. I really think that I think you need to have an operation to get the baby out. He's getting quite distressed now. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was excited. I jumped at it. I said, do it. I want him out. I'm in so much pain. You know, I've been through so much emotion. I just thought I just need to see, like, let me see my baby. I want to I want to meet my son. And, yeah, so they got me ready and we rushed, semi-rushed upstairs and got ready. And I was still having really extensive, like, really strong contractions. And being in a hospital theatre, I don't know if you guys have ever had, had that experience, but it's just a surreal sort of experience of just being, you're in this cold, open, wet room you know you just feel you just feel you feel gross everyone's looking at you you know you're half naked it really is confronting and I feel like I've supported women remote women that are from out bush that have had cesarean sections and I think I can't even manage this and I'm a midwife and I work in this setting every day and I'm really struggling I'm really struggling to process what's going on and I'm so scared I remember saying to my friend Pippa, who was one of my midwives, because they both at that time agreed to stay for the birth. And I remember saying to her, like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I, I really am going to die. I was so scared because I thought I'm going to feel them cutting me. Like, I was just, I was crazy. I, I, you know, I'm usually really well controlled, but this really set me off. So Micah was there and they started the operation and I, you're kind of just laying there and they're 
working and the doctors you know the good thing is we all knew each other so they kind of all talk we're all kind of talking together and I didn't know that Angus was going to be a boy so we kind of had that thing of we're waiting for this surprise we don't know I wanted a I wanted whatever but everyone said girl and I said I didn't want a girl because I've, I've, I've got a daughter so it didn't really matter to me and then yeah I had one of the midwives one of my midwives was receiving angus and the other one was taking photos so i've got photos of this doctor reaching in and actually grabbing angus like pulling him out i feel so lucky because she's just retired the other week so she's left alice springs and then he was born and i heard a cry and i just remember being so full of emotion and just crying like i just started bawling my eyes out and i was lying there and i remember my friend coming around the corner holding him and she goes it's a boy and she shows him to me and I just burst out crying even more and Micah was crying and I looked at him and I said, you're not disappointed, are you? Because, you know, him already having sons. You're not disappointed. He goes, no, I'm happy, I'm happy. And they took him over and he cut the cord and my other midwife, Claire, she documented everything. She took photos of everything. Um, he cut the cord and he came back and, you know, they put him skin to skin with me and then we went out into recovery and he went straight away onto the boob like, you know, I, I always thought, oh, this breastfeeding thing's going to be, you know, easy. And like it really was. He just went straight on and started feeding. And, yeah, he was just the most beautiful, amazing person I'd ever seen. And I thought, oh. I, I still, even now I look at him and I'm like, where did you come from? Like, <laughs> yeah. how did I make you? <laughs> yeah. Um. And you just get that overwhelming, like, just love. Like, I just, every day, yeah, he just makes my life better and I used to hate seeing women saying that all the time. I used to cringe like, oh, here we go, mum, talking about their kids. <laughs> but you don't know it until know. until you go through it, right? No. The, like, the feeling and then of I love just, for It's a safe children. place here. We're all mums and we yeah, just all love talking just, about it as much as each other. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, everything he does, like he does a poo, I'm amazed at it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> so true. But it's just that everything, like having him with me in that recovery room, it's like everything disappeared, you know, like all my worries and fears and everything I had my doubts about, everything that was going to happen, you know, the pain that I was feeling, the, the, the stress that I was in, it just left my body. It just left my body. I was like, I was cured. You know, once he was in my arms, I was like, okay, I'm normal again. And then, yeah, that, then it was just like bliss for like forever. And it still is, you know, it still is amazing. And yeah, I just feel really lucky that to have had that option to have that experience and and having such extreme experiences, you know, having the worst and then having, I'll call it the best. I had an emergency cesarean section. I didn't labour. He didn't come, you know, I didn't birth him naturally. But for me it was the best experience, mm. having had the worst experience ever, mm. you know, that, that was what I needed. So I think the best part of that story or the most comforting part of that story was hearing you say that there was a doctor there that you trusted who came to you and explained to you what she thought was the best thing forward from there, which was to have the emergency Caesar and you agreed and you were given that opportunity to make that choice. Like that's because I, I, a lot of women who have had caesareans in a way like that where they've been explained to that that's the best option and they've been able to make that choice, a lot of them say, say the same thing, like it was still an amazing experience, I wouldn't change it for the world. Everyone just wants the outcome to be a healthy mum and a healthy baby. So after, yeah, like you said, after your previous experience, that was just so, like, yeah. 
you know, <laughs> was almost crying when, yeah. when I heard that part of the story. So I'm happy for you that you, you know, finally had that that experience. And thanks for sharing that story yeah, with us. Absolutely. Pretty much from my, the start of my career, being an Aboriginal midwife and being one of very few Aboriginal midwives, my whole, pretty much my whole life is an open book. You know, I, I want to inspire other women to, to, to go off and to do the things that I've done and to be a midwife or, you know, to just make a change in, in the field that they're working in. And so I try, I want to be able to share my experiences because I want to, yeah, influence and I don't set out to be an inspiration, but it just happens that this is kind of the cards that I was dealt. So, you know, to me, it makes no difference. It, it doesn't affect me what people think about me, just that they know that they can, you know, have good experiences or do the right thing and change someone else's life or impact them. And, you know, all of that stuff it, at the end of the day, it kind of, it gives me a little bit of purpose really in my job because I can be a midwife forever, but the, you know, the kind of work that I'm doing is, is really special to me and to my community. And that's the important thing. I'm here to say you're an inspiration. <laughs> that is an under, that is an understatement to say that. Sharice, thank you so much for giving us your very precious time and for giving us such wonderful insight into the incredible work that you do for so many women and communities. And we've both learned so much from our conversation with you today and really appreciate you, you know, t- sharing your knowledge, expertise and experiences with us. So thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. So yeah, it's been fun. Thank you so much. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you, you too. Bye. Bye. That's it for today. Make sure you head to incommonprojects.com.au for the show notes. Hit subscribe on your podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Talking In Common. Or you can check out our Facebook page, which is also Talking In Common. Have a lovely day and as always, thanks for listening.